This is Abigail Favalli, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Culture. David, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, we've got David French in the studio. I've got his book on the table. So you're an all-around politics expert. How would you do, how would you, Ugh. what's the one-line bio? I mean, you're a writer, you run the dispatch, you're a commentator. Uh, I think, lawyer. Ri- I think writer is yeah. the just, you know. Writer. That's writer. There's, yeah. there's dignity in that. Yeah. I'm here yeah. with writer David French. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then, and then people get disappointed because when you say writer, then they immediately think, oh, novels. Yes. And then you say, no, mm. Mm, political and cultural and legal commentary. And then it's, oh, that's not so fun. I don't know. But I, you know, I've been reading your latest, is this your latest book, mm-hmm. Divided We Fall? It sure is. Um, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. And there's there's some chapters in there that could be good screenplays. You know, I kind of want to see the Netflix miniseries of all the the secession scenarios. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, it's funny that part of the book was actually my publisher's idea. So yeah, I I was talking to him because I'm really worried that this country might come apart. And he said, "Well, how would it happen?" Because mm-hmm. he he was kind of skeptical. And I said, "Well, there's a couple of ways." Like, Let's imagine this. And I kind of painted out this thing for California. And then I said, and imagine this. And I kind of painted out this thing for Texas. And he said, that's in the book. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, okay. So now I kind of want to, I wasn't intending to go there immediately, but let's do it. (laughs) So one of the, one of the key premises of your book, or I guess one of the key arguments you have is that our negative polarization in America is actually endangering the union of the country and that we could be seeing some kind of breakdown of the union. We could have certain areas of the country seceding. Um, So uh, yeah, what would that look like? Yeah, that's a really good and scary question. Um, So my basic premise of the book is summed up in one sentence, and that's that there is no single truly important cultural, political religious trend that is pulling us together more than it's pushing us apart. So all of these things are pulling at us and pulling at us. And when that happens, you start to create an inherent instability. And so unpredictable things can occur that can cause catastrophic consequences. Um, You know, one of the paradigmatic elements or instances of that in history is the uh, assassination of Archduke Francis Ferdinand mm-hmm. that started the World War I cataclysm. But when it immediately happened, nobody was sitting there going, our world is about to just totally upend and transform. So one of the points that I make in the book is that we are growing to hate each other so much and distrust each other so much that it is kind of like taking dry wood and fuel and building this potential bonfire and building it. And then the spark could come really in a lot of different ways. And in fact, you know, right on January 6th, think about this scenario, because we now know there was a legal memorandum that was given to Mike Pence that purported, it was it was very, I mean, it was specious, it was absurd, but it was at least a piece of paper that said that he had the power to essentially declare Donald Trump the winner of the presidential campaign. That if, hmm. and the president wanted him to do that, people were urging him to do that, And what if in that moment on January 6th, instead of doing the right thing and upholding the results of a lawful election, Pence had said, I am ruling the electoral votes of Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and Arizona and Georgia out of bounds. And Donald J. Trump is now the winner of the presidential election. What happens then? What happens then? At the dispatch, we've actually considered doing a podcast where we sort of war game that out. What would have occurred? Because immediately, all the blue states would not recognize Trump as the president. Immediately, many red state governors would recognize Trump as the president. The Supreme Court would be asked to resolve it, but the Supreme Court doesn't have an army. (laughs) And then then the question would then devolve to what does the literal army do? And the last thing it wants to do is to determine an election dispute. So there's all kinds of ways this thing 
could have played out horribly Mm -hmm. had Mike Pence not on January 6th rejected that advice, Mm -hmm. done what the Constitution required and declare the winner. Had he, it's it's really strange and almost spooky to think how much weight rested on the shoulders of one person in that moment. Right. Woo. Yes. Thanks, thanks, Mike. Uh, (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Wow. Thanks, thanks, dude. (laughs) So did, did what transpired on January 6th, did that reaffirm everything you argued in this book that you, that obviously um, was published before that happened, or did it make you think, huh, maybe the fact that it didn't become this kind of civil war. Well, let me put it this way. My warnings in the book are for are more for the medium distance. In other words, if we keep heading down this road, we might see catastrophic things occur. And even in December of, of 2020, I was warning, like, all this rhetoric is going to lead to violence. All this rhetoric is going to lead to violence. You tell enough people an election is stolen and some people act like it really has been. I didn't expect the Capitol to be stormed. Right. I did not expect that. And, and so... And then I and then I did kind of expect what happened next, which was there was shock and alarm on both sides of the political spectrum. Then, but then all of a sudden, a lot of people on one side start minimizing it and downplaying it and excusing mm. it and putting conspiracy theories around it. And then you begin to think, oh, this is dark because this is what a um, uh, an expert in conflict in the developing world. Uh, I was talking to him when I was researching the book and. He said a number of things that are really sort of transformative in how I was looking at our own country. But one of the things he said is, and this was before January 6th, if everything that you see happening in the U.S., you are watching happen to a foreign country, what would you think about that country? And I would have said immediately, I would think it's unstable. He said it's unstable. And then extrapolate that to January 6th. If you see, a, if you see an angry mob take over parliament— you know, the Houses right. of Parliament in Great Britain. Would you think that that, that country's stable? It's stable. <laughs> right. You would not think that, not for a million years. And so we are enduring things that if that other people outside of America are objectively able to say, this is, you're in the middle of a destabilizing moment. But a lot of us in here, because we can't wrap our minds around um, anything that is truly catastrophic, we're kind of in denial. We're in denial. But if it was happening to somebody else, we would we would be able to name it and diagnose it almost immediately. So in the various secession scenarios that mm-hmm. you've kind of played out, are they are they all violent? No. Are, well, I don't well, think what does a nonviolent yeah. scenario look like? So I think there could be element there would be perhaps violence at the fringes, but I don't and expect that there would be, and I do not draw out in the book that we would ever have another civil war. Okay. Um, and the reasons for that are multiple. Um, one is, I think we hate each other too much in a weird way. In other words, <laughs> if California said bye, right. a lot of people outside of California would say bye. Right. They wouldn't want to send their sons and daughters to die to keep California. Right. They would want it gone. It's so, so the 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 actual working title of, of the book before the publisher came up with the better divided we fall was the Great American Divorce. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, and and the analogy that mm. I was drawing, sort of as I was walking through the book, was we're at the stage where like the parents aren't sleeping in the same bedroom anymore, and. <laughs> They're really growing and their distaste for each other, but there's so many things that keep them together. Um, that's kind of where we are. And the, and the scenarios I paint in the book are not about civil war at all. They're about people leaving and then the national government letting them leave. And another reason why I don't expect civil war is, look, it, it would just be too horrifying it would be too horrifying. Um, I, I still have this view, and of course, you know, I could, I could, you know, um, I look back on this podcast one day and say, "Wow, I was way too optimistic about about <laughs> the future." But I still have this view that we wouldn't go there. Mm-hmm. That we wouldn't go there because the weapons that we have at our disposal, um, you just can't even imagine what the world would be like if they were turned on each other. Right. Um, so I think the animosity is much more towards a divorce style 
Um, and and look, I mean, we've had close allies that have had votes in the last, you know, in my adult lifetime. I mean, most recently, Great Britain had a vote where if Scotland had voted to leave, they were going to let Scotland mm-hmm. leave. Right. Um, Canada has had votes where if Quebec voted to leave, likely they would have let Quebec leave. So that's the kind of um, mm, scenario yeah. that I imagine. Well, what what's wrong with that? You know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I guess I'm wondering what, you know, in the in the kind of divorce metaphor, maybe would it be better if mom and dad lived separately? <laughs> would the kids be happier, right? So what's what's the argument for, no, even though we hate each other so much, we really need to stay unified? Yeah. So it's so funny when I wrote the book, I was really nervous about the subtitle. So mm. the divided we fall, everybody knows we're divided, right? Right. right. Those are famous words. Um, and then America's secession threat, the S word, secession. Like, mm. really? Aren't you being alarmist, David? I mean, do we need more of that? And the funny thing is, as soon as I published the book, and this was before January 6th and before the contested election, the number one question I got was, why not? Why not just go our separate ways? And it was from red America. It was from blue America. I mean, the most recent polling shows that 52% of Trump voters are open to splitting apart the nation, 40% of Biden voters. That's a lot of people. And so the answer I give is, is there's, is really twofold. One is, look, as a matter of historical Sort of as is if you just look through the great sweep of history, the principles. Now I know American history has lots of problems, and when America was founded, it was founded in the midst of lots of problems, mm-hmm. most notably in uh, slavery. slavery. Mm-hmm. But the principles articulated in the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights are good. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men, you know, are, we are endowed by our Creator with, with certain inalienable rights, among them the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is a good and true. Those words are good and true. The Bill of Rights is mm-hmm. this fantastic articulation of human rights that is good and true. And what's happened over the course of American history is those good and true principles of the founding have been in tension with the injustice of the time and over time have steadily prevailed. I mean, sometimes too slowly, often too slowly, sometimes violently, but over time, these really good principles of equality under the law, due process, free speech, free exercise of religion as civilizational values have prevailed. And if you blow up this country, whether literally or, you know, uh, politically, what values will prevail then? And if you assume Mm. that they're going to be just as good values or better values, you don't know much about how history can unwind in catastrophic and unpredictable ways. Here's what we know. The fundamental social compact in the United States of America is good. The Bill of Rights, that's that's one of the most powerful declarations of human dignity in world history is the, our Bill of Rights. So to throw all that away because of this burst of animosity that we have as a people is absurd. And then the other thing is just as a pragmatic, practical matter, you have no idea how much not, not only would that disrupt your life, the lives of everybody around you, disrupt the world um, and throw the world into a degree of chaos where in the book I predict it would end in in very in very violent ways um, because without that sort of American strength that secures the Western alliance that secures our alliances in the Pacific without that American strength the the old maladies of history would come back fast. And so we don't really realize the extent to which our current structure and the current order of the world is so heavily dependent. So many things that we take for granted, like eight, almost 80 years without a world war. Yeah. So many things we take for granted are because of this united, very powerful nation that is the United States of America. So you don't, I mean, who, there would be a power vacuum essentially, Giant. right? And then what would come in to fill that? People's Republic of China, yeah. uh, Russia. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, some of our allies like Great Britain and France would tra- probably, ex- uh, you know, extend their military reach. You would have Japan uh, probably increasing its strength, South Korea, Germany. You would have a lot of the traditional historic great powers in the world magnifying their strength. And they have a lot of competing interests. 
And so is it better for the world if if America is weaker and Russia is stronger or the People's Republic of China is stronger? I don't think so. Is it better for us if China is stronger? I don't think so. So um, one of the things that I map out is the way in which some of these more uh, belligerent powers would immediately test the new world order and would ex- mm-hmm. use their military strength. And I think that you know, if we think as a human, as humanity, that we're past all those bad old days, we don't know much about humanity. Um, we're not past it at all. We're capable of everything that every human generation has been capable of that's come before us. Yeah, yeah. So in in your first in the first part of your answer, you had this appeal to the foundational American principles, such as um, human dignity, um, basic equality, liberty. Um, you hear both sides use those words a lot, right? Yeah. So I guess I'm wondering less, if- Less and less though, sadly. Less and less, you less think so? Less. Yeah, yes. so I'm wondering like, what's the problem? Is it that each side is kind of coming up with their own definitions of what those terms mean? Are they abandoning those principles, right? Are these just like empty signifiers now that are kind of being thrown around? They're abandoning the principles to uh, a degree that a lot of people would be surprised. So if you're not deeply enmeshed in American political arguments- That is- that is correct. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not, well, first, God bless you. Your life is probably a lot happier. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're not deeply enmeshed in these arguments, um, there's something really important, like almost tectonically important that's happening in a lot of our political argument. And that is that on the left and on the right, people are beginning to question American classical liberalism itself. Right. Okay. So- when I say American classical liberalism, I'm I'm not talking about liberal versus conservative. I'm talking about the classical liberal principles of the founding, which is essentially a rights-based political structure mm-hmm. with uh, d- power diffuse, you know, power separated and power delegated. So the very opposite of some of the European societies that we were born from, where power was consolidated and it was authoritarian as opposed to rights-based. And so what you have in growing in parts of the left is a direct attack on classical liberalism. Mm-hmm. Parts of critical race theory do this, for example. Um, they explicitly reject liberalism. Sure. Yeah. Then you have growing on the right, a growing movement mainly of Christian um, Christian thinkers married to and a temporary marriage of convenience with sort of populism, Trumpist populism, who completely reject the classical liberal fi- founding of the U.S., they believe hmm. that the rights-based formulation creates a series of atomized individuals who are selfish and self-centered and self-focused, and it degrades deeper values such as family and church and country in favor of a bunch of people sort of running after their own interests. And so they reject classical liberalism. In fact, I had a, uh, a big debate two summers ago at Catholic University of America where mm-hmm. I confronted a uh, I, I debated a, a guy named Sora Bamari. He was the editorial page editor of the New York Post, and he had written an article called Against David Frenchism. Yeah, okay. <laughs> which, which, a little personal, uh, <laughs> but it was directly uh, attacking my classical liberal views. I was sort of a hmm. stand-in for the classical liberals. And so we, at, you know, standing room only at Catholic University, debated classical liberalism itself. And hmm. There's a growing movement on the right, especially uh, Christians on the right, who are rejecting um, the very classical liberalism of our founding. And so you kind of have two, there's now two sort of culture wars going on at once. There's one that is the old school one, which is the one we all grew up with, which is pro-life or pro-choice, gun rights or whatever. And there's a bigger one now. There's one over that, that is liberalism or authoritarianism. And... You have a lot of people in this country, and it reflects itself in the polling. It reflects itself in people's behavior and conduct. They're more willing to accept violence in the political process. They are less willing to expect the, to respect the free speech of their opponents. Hmm. I mean, this is cancel culture, for example. Right. So there is there there are a, a lot of people in this country that, if you refer back to the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence, they don't have the same view of it that many of us assume that they might. Mm-hmm. So are we talking like extreme fringes of the right and the left here that are just kind of grabbing the microphone? Are, are In your analysis, is there, 
are there a is there a hearty middle that you're trying to woo? Yeah. Right. Or are we just yeah. screwed? <laughs> well, no. So here's here's the here's the reality. So American polarization, this really bitter, vicious, angry polarization, is really driven by um, what there's a fantastic study of American uh, American polarization by a group called More in Common, and they. They said, we're deeper than red and blue. So what are the differences? And so the study was called the hidden tribes of America. Mm -hmm. So there's a bunch of different ways in which people are red or blue or somewhere in the in the middle. And they found that there was about eight or so tribes and that the vast majority of polarization is being driven by the people who are very extremely conservative and very mm -hmm. extremely progressive. In total, they make up about, up about only 14% of America. Okay. They are disproportionately wealthy. Oh, gosh, shoot. Yes, they're All disproportionately right. white, and they are disproportionately mm. likely to view politics as a hobby. Ooh, interesting. And okay. so they are very, they're, they dive into politics. Mm -hmm. they're, they're the kind of person who comes home from work, turns on Fox, doesn't turn it off until they go to bed, right. or the kind of person who's just devouring every NPR podcast mm -hmm. that there is or whatever. And so they're very focused on politics. They tend to have a lot of resources, and they are very angry at each other. And they're kind of pulling the rest of us down with them. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is there is about almost two-thirds of America that is what's called the exhausted majority. Okay, sounds okay. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm vibing with that. Yes. All right. So the exhausted majority can be liberal. It can be conservative. It can be in the middle. But they share some common characteristics. And one of those is they're over it. Yeah, they okay. ju they just don't want they don't want a piece of this argument. They're sick of it. They wonder why people can't compromise. They might again. They're not all moderates, but they realize that politics involves a degree of compromise. That politics shouldn't be so polarized. They're sick of it. They're just sick right. of it. Now the problem with that is the, and you would say, hey, yay, we have a lot of hope, but, but the but the key word isn't majority. It's, it's exhausted. exhausted. Okay. Yeah. So I'll give you a perfect example. So where I live, um, I live in a very conservative part of the country. And the New York Times has this thing where you can put, has this website where you can put in your address and it'll tell you what percentage yeah, of the country. I have done that. How, oh, what's your percentage? I didn't, maybe not in the most recent election, but I remember in 2016 and so Trump and Clinton and it, Newberg's really kind of like purple. Right. It's, you know, it was like 45, 45 or something Interesting. like that. Yeah. So my neighborhood was 85% Republican. Mm. And here's the way it works in my neighborhood. Um, if you are very Trumpist, very Trumpy, you are out and proud. I mean, you are absolutely, you know, on Facebook, on social media, if you're anti-vax, if you're anti-mask, you are very loud. If you disagree with those things, you might still be Republican. You might still have even voted for Trump. In fact, the vast majority of my neighbors did. But you're, maybe you don't want him to run again. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you're fine with the vaccine. Or maybe you don't have strong feelings one way or the other about masking or whatever. You, you name the issue that people are really at each other. Rather than engaging in the conversation, what they're doing is just they're just pulling away. Yeah. They don't want to lose relationships with friends. They don't want to lose relationships with family members. I, I so this one example, I was talking to a doctor and he said, before January 6th, I was, you know, I follow social media, I follow the news. After January 6th, I just turned it all off, deleted social media, hmm. stopped watching cable news. My blood pressure went down. I'm happier. And I had two thoughts at once. One was good for him. You know, it's good for you. Like, I'm glad that you're happier and, you know, your, your blood pressure's down. The other one was bad for us. Because mm -hmm. he's a good guy. You know, he's somebody who is reasonable and thoughtful and compassionate. And that's the voices we want. Or those, those are the voices we want. And I have another very good friend. He and I disagreed. We've been friends for years and years. We disagreed strongly about Trump. I was against Trump. He was very much for Trump. But good, you know, good guy, good friends. And on January 6th, he wrote on Facebook just a very short condemnation of the violence. He didn't even mention Trump, but he had family members threaten to sever their relationship with him. Oh my gosh. So if you're a, a member of a family and you're thinking, and you're, you've got a healthy, reasonable view of the world, you don't want to lose your family members over 
politics. So you pull away. You pull away. So that's what a lot of people have done is they've pulled away. They don't want to lose relationships or jobs or peace of mind over politics. And that's left the field to all of these people who are very angry, very vengeful, um, and furious and driving us apart. Oh. So this is very encouraging. This such encouraging conversation. Oh, and- <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like you're looking into my soul right now because I'm, I'm very much one of the exhausted majority. Oh, I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. I'm exhausted. I mean, my job is, this is my job and I'm exhausted by this right. constant yeah. in- churn of, you're not angry enough. You're yeah. not mad enough. Why don't you say anything more about this? Why don't you say anything more about that? And it's just, un- it, it, it cannot keep going on like this. Right. Yeah. I. So, okay, I'll just put all my cards on the table. I'm a very politically confused individual. Um, so I have a history of voting Democrat until, I don't know, around like seven or eight years ago when I had a more kind of profound reconversion back to Christianity. And uh, then it, I couldn't do the Democrat thing anymore, but then I also couldn't go Republican, right? right. Like when you when you do like the quadrant quiz, you yeah. know, like, oh, what are my political views? Which I do on the regular because I'm like, oh, someone tell me what my political views are. I, I'm, I'm in the middle, but it's because I have pretty extreme views on each side. Yeah. It's not because I'm just like, oh, I'm very centrist in all my views. It's like, no, yeah. I have kind of you know, I'm like very pro-life, all right, but I'm also like against the death penalty, right? So I've got these more um, more extreme views that then kind of push me into the middle. And so I think part of what makes it so difficult to engage with anything political is that I feel like everyone hates me. You know what yes, I mean? It's like, oh, yeah. um, and then that makes me want to just say a plague on both your houses, <laughs> you know? And then I, then, yeah, I'm like, okay, I think I just won't read the news and I will take a long fast from social media, which I'm in kind of a a long fast period from that right now. But then I also have this little voice and this little Jiminy Cricket inside me that's like, mm, but, you know, is this, yeah. is this a problem that you're just checking out, right? Well, you know, what's happened is there's a lot of people where you are. There's a lot of people. So um, here's where I am. I don't belong to, I, I grew up conservative, Republican. I, my parents were Democrats, but I, um, when Ronald Reagan was the first president, I really knew and 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 I really respected him. And I was a Cold War conservative against the Soviet Union. And and um, and then I went to Iraq and I came back in 2008 and I started to get less partisan hmm. while everyone else around me was getting more partisan. And then by 2016, when Trump was nominated, I just I could not be a part of that. So right. I just nope, I'm not a Republican. Period. I'm I'm not going to affiliate with a party that would put a man like that as the head of its party. And so I have no political party now, and my views don't fit neatly yeah. with any political party. So I'm very pro-life. Mm-hmm. I'm also very focused on racial reconciliation. Mm-hmm. I'm very focused on protecting civil liberties. Which party is for me? Right, exactly. You know, and yep. the interesting thing is, there's I'm I, I'm I'm 52, so I can't put myself in the category of Christian young person anymore. <laughs> but there's a lot of young evangelicals who are exactly in that space. Mm, yeah, they're saying I'm really concerned about what's gone on in this country regarding race and what's still mm-hmm. going on regarding race, and I don't think it's woke to ask those questions. Right. Like, can't we talk about history honestly without right. somebody call, using a name to call us? And then at the same time, I'm really deeply concerned that I think we should protect unborn life. Mm-hmm. And then also, I want to, I, I, you know, I know you can't just have completely open borders, but I want to welcome yes. immigrants and refugees. Um, I mean, when I was growing up, the, the, the notion that refugees wanted to come to our shores, we were proud of yes. that. Statue of Liberty, baby. Yeah. yeah. We were proud of it. Mm-hmm. Like in the in the Cold War times, they had to build walls to keep people in. That's how bad it was there. Oh. And we're yeah. welcoming people. Yes. And so, and I'm deeply confused by this notion that says, well, we've got to really restrict as many to as mm-hmm. few people as possible, especially refugees. What? Right. Yes. Especially. So where do you fit in then? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that this is a, 
there is an emerging millions. There's a, there are emerging millions of people who are, they don't feel at home anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have a structure. Mm-hmm. They don't have an institutions. They don't have leadership, but they have a sense. And it, uh, uh, somebody wrote a piece that was really kind of had a great, a, a great um, sort of line. He said, it's like we're an island of misfit toys. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, the way I put it, writing about it is, but we're, we're several islands of misfit toys and we're kind of finding each other right mm. now. Okay. Well, how do we find each other, right? I mean, part of my problem is when I, when I do get into a phase where I'm like, oh, shoot, I should see what's <laughs> going on in the world. Then I don't even know where do I go? Like, wh- yeah. do I, what do I Google? Like, <laughs> yeah. Should I not Google, you know, like um, so it, it's all filtered to me. Right. Yeah. So how, like, where do we, I mean, besides the dispatch, of course. Yeah. Right? Well, but I like, was going <laughs> to say the dispatch, but that's the challenge. You just yeah. identified the challenge because mm-hmm. the, the big institutions that have been built up, the political institutions of this country are constructed in such a way that they're going to try to channel you into one or the yep. other. And, yes. you know, in 2020, if I had a dime for everybody told me you have a binary choice, um, you know, I'd be the wealthiest journalist around. <laughs> but the, the, the reality is that we have a lot of institutions that are channeling us into that either or mm-hmm. construct. And so we're having to build new institutions that are liberating us from that. Mm-hmm. Higher education, I think, Christian higher education can play a, a powerful mm-hmm. role in this. You know, you can... You can do a, you can teach a generation of young Christians this. You do not have to conform Mm -hmm. to whichever, however any political party tells you to conform. You can demand that they conform to you before you give them their support. And and this is something I tell uh, Christian young people all the time. Do not fall for the lie that says you have to choose. And if it's between two evils, you have to choose the lesser evil. Mm. Lesser evil choices are corrupting. Yes. They're corrupting in a really powerful way. And and, and here's how they're they're corrupting. Nobody wants to be on team lesser evil. <laughs> right? So you might hold your nose and vote for somebody, mm-hmm. but that's not the end of your political participation. You feel invested in you want to have been right. You know, you want this to not just be lesser evil, but like actually decent and good. Mm-hmm. And so what ends up happening is you have this powerful incentive to minimize the flaws on your own side and maximize the flaws on the other side. Yes. And so what ends up happening is you actually get into this cycle where after months and then years, what you would have once called evil, you now call good. Mm-hmm. And we saw this happen we saw this happen. I can't tell you how many Christians who by the time late 2020 rolled around were actually a lot of Trump's cruelty is, is good. Wow. Like it's actually yeah. good because it's he's aiming it at the right people and he's defending me. When four years before they would have said, no, 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 it's terrible. Mm-hmm. It's terrible, but it's still better than Hillary. Right, I'll hold my nose and vote. Exactly. For, yeah. But now I'm like, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people went from holding their nose to third boat in the in the boat parade. <laughs> and that's a lot of people because why? Because you don't want to be on team lesser evil. Mm. And so that has a powerful effect on you. And so that's why yeah. I say to young people is you've got to start now saying, here are my non-negotiable list of demands for my support mm. and stick to it. Yeah, that's such good advice. You know, something I think looking back at my own kind of, I don't know, political journey or whatever you want to call it. Um, when I was an undergrad, I became really into feminism. That kind of mm-hmm. became like my religion in a way. Um, and I grew up in um, an evangelical red state context. My dad loved listening to Rush Limbaugh, right, you know, right. like feminazis, right? <laughs> so um, I, anyway, in that context, though, I had a very, I guess, like pro-life upbringing. And that just, that really made a lot of sense to me morally, theologically. Mm-hmm. I was not conflicted about that. It just seemed, yeah. it was just true. And then what what's interesting, though, in looking back is by the time I graduated from college, um, you know, I remember like I was driving somewhere with my boyfriend, or maybe my husband, I'm not sure if we were married yet, but, um, and we drove past an abortion clinic and there were some protesters mm-hmm. outside. And 
just before, without even thinking, I just like gave him the finger. You know, that was, I just felt like rage, (laughs) you know? And I look back at that now and I'm like, I didn't, it wasn't as though I read an argument that changed my position. Mm -hmm. It wasn't as though I deeply thought about this issue. I remember, in fact, even I worked for lawyers um, in a gap year after undergrad and reading through some of the Supreme Court decisions when I was bored and reading the Roe v. Wade decision and kind of feeling underwhelmed by it. Oh, like, totally. Like, yeah. oh, that's the argument? Yeah. That's not compelling. But nonetheless, my emotions and my sentiments, I think, were shaped. Or So the language you use, I think, because I had these kind of feminist commitments that are translated into this particular political context. And so it's almost like I received this prepackaged set yeah. of beliefs that exactly. I then had to embrace and not, and, and fully, right? I mean, having that kind of reaction of emotion and flipping off those protesters, um, that was something you do kind of instinctively. I did that yeah. instinctively. So I look back now and I think I, I didn't have a conversion of like mind about that stuff, mm-hmm. but I, I inherited it. So I think your advice is excellent. Like don't, like decide what you believe, like decide what you value and then and then demand that the yeah. politics conform to that rather than the other way around. Exactly. And yeah. and what we often we what we do and Tim Keller had this really fantastic uh, op-ed he wrote in the New York Times where he talked about what partisanship does is it creates package deal ethics. Yes. So if you right. want to be pro-life, well that means you're going to be Republican. But Republicans <laughs> are at this present point in time they haven't always been pretty anti-immigrant. Yes. Okay. That's so, the problem. Yeah. Which no, I don't agree with that. But mm-hmm. no, it's part of the deal. Right. You know, that's the package deal. And and so uh, what Keller was saying is Christians, we cannot buy into this package deal ethics. And so, you know, one of the things um, that I, I wrote this, this uh, piece over the weekend where I talked about a defense of classical liberalism. And one of the things about our Bill of Rights and our Declaration of Independence and the Civil War Amendments is there a they are, those are words collectively are a tremendous acknowledgement of human dignity, of mm. human dignity. And at the very base, basic level of politics, I think that one of the things that we can ask people is, do your beliefs respect and acknowledge human dignity as human beings created in the image of God? And the interesting thing about feminism, for example, what is, feminism is a, 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 statement to the world that we are equal, mm-hmm. of equal value, of equal worth, and should be uh, as in the eyes of God to men, and should be in the eyes of the state as well. Mm-hmm. So that's a human dignity-based movement, the civil rights movement, right. human dignity-based movement. And I connect that with life. That's a human mm-hmm. dignity-based yes. movement. And so what we have are parties that are often kind of selective and coalitional about human mm-hmm. dignity. Yes. And that is deeply troubling and should be troubling to Christians. And we don't have to do the package deal ethics. Right. Okay. So what does that look like practically though? Yeah. Like when I get my mail-in ballot yes. in Oregon, you know, we don't, right. we, it's all mail-in. Mm-hmm. And I sit down at my dinner table with my coffee and think, well, crap, what am I going to do? <laughs> um, which I've done, you know, and I think I've done the protest vote. Mm-hmm. There's the third party option, right? I mean, so I have what a, do you do? I have a two-part test. Okay. Every candidate that I vote for has to pass both parts. One is, does your character match the office you're seeking? So the higher the office, the better character you have to have. We often have a sort of reverse view, like we character is a luxury for the lower offices, but not the higher ones. It's too, the presidency is too important for truth. No, that's not the way it works. So your character has to match the office that you're seeking and your your policies generally have to match. Now there's going to be Nobody's going to always totally agree. If you pass pass both tests, you get my vote. If you don't, you don't. Hmm. And the problem that we have is if you actually applied that test, if if the message of the American Evangelical Church to our to our politicians was, your character has to cross a certain threshold, or we don't vote for you. Hmm. Well, you know what? We would stop seeing a lot of these parties feeding poor character people to us because they know they wouldn't win. Now, our politics is flawed and the politics of the state of Alabama is super, super flawed. Mm. But one thing we now know is you can't nominate a guy who has been accused by multiple people of sexual misconduct towards minors 
and have him win the Senate just because he has a Republican by his name. Right. So that's a good that's a good floor to set, <laughs> right? And so, you know, there we there are floors you have to set. Now the problem is it's a collective action problem. So you sit there and you're at this, you're one person and I'm mm-hmm. one person. And you think, well, what the heck difference does this make? You know, I mean, I if I don't vote for these two people, you know, if I if I write in somebody or whatever. So the collective action problem is the problem. Mm-hmm. If it's two million people sitting at their table saying, nope, neither one's good enough. Now you got some material to work with. If it's, you know, two million sitting at the table sitting thinking that, but then writing in one of those two anyway, mm-hmm. then you've got your problem. Mm-hmm. And so but this is a process, I think, of, of this is a process of cultural repair we have to undertake. And mm. I think it has to start with the church. We went from a situation where evangelicals before 2016 were the subset of Americans most likely to say character mattered in leaders. Yeah. In 2016, we became the subset of Americans least likely to say character matters. So interesting. Yeah, interesting. Wonder why that happened. <laughs> I can't quite right. figure it out. But so can we repair that at least? Can this community, can a body of Christ, can a body of believers at least repair this one thing? Can we say, can we return to a situation where we were the subgroup of Americans most likely to put a character test on politicians? Hmm. How else can this exhausted majority engage meaningfully? Like, you know, you were kind of bemoaning yeah. your thoughtful neighbor who's just saying peace out. So, <laughs> I mean, should he go on Twitter? I mean, yeah, what, yeah. you know, what do we do? So I think it isn't social media. Um, I mean, maybe for some people, you know, it's, it's. Um, I, I have some good friends, um, just wonderful, thoughtful Christians, and, and we're all on Twitter. And we're always asked, why are you on this website? Mm-hmm. And and essentially the answer is, well, so long as it's not corrupting our soul, we kind of feel like there need to be some counter voices to a lot of this out there. Right. But the first part of your sentence is really important. The first part is super <laughs> important. But I think what we're losing is relationships. Okay. Okay. So there was a study done that was released. Uh, the results were released a few months ago, and it found that men in particular have had a catastrophic drop in the number of friendships they have in their lives. Wow. So the number of men without a single close friend has skyrocketed, and the number of men with many close friends has really diminished. Interesting. And so, and women, it has happened as well, but not as extreme. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's happening is you have people who need relationship and need the purpose and the meaning provided by relationships, like we need air or water. And what are they doing? They're going out and they're finding this purpose and they're finding these relationships in politics or, you know, entertainment or whatever. And it's not a good, it doesn't, it doesn't fill the void. It just Mm -hmm. doesn't. And so I get a lot of emails from, you know, young Christians and others who say, my aunt or uncle is totally lost into this QAnon world or totally lost into Stop the Steal or all in on this or that. What do I do? And I think what they're often looking for is me to send them the perfect article that's going to, they're going to read it and they're like, (laughs) you know, the light will come down (laughs) from the heavens. That's not the way we work. Right. So I, I always write back and I say, how much time do you spend with them? Yeah. Because what's happened is people are finding purpose in these political causes and movements, mm-hmm. and it's becoming their social circle. It's becoming their friend group. So if I send you a fact check and you and all your friends are all in on anti-vax or whatever, mm-hmm. and you think, huh, that's right. But if I start supporting vaccines, all my friends are going to, le-, you know, mm-hmm. you begin to realize what's happening. And I think that what we've had is a loss of human connection and human relationship. And uh, Jonathan Haidt, who's a mm-hmm. yeah. oh, uh, you know, just a wonderful um, scholar of of American, gosh, I mean, how would you describe what, what you know the science of persuasion? And mm-hmm. he calls it the elephant and the rider. And he mm-hmm. said that the rider is your rational mind, and all of us think. We like to think of ourselves as people who are governed by logic and reason. The elephant is everything else. 
Mm-hmm. The elephant is where we're our upbringing, our upbringing, our circle of friends, our demographic profile, our wealth or lack there, whatever. And he says the rider can want to go somewhere, but if the elephant doesn't want to go, you ain't going. Hmm. And if you if the elephant goes somewhere, you know where the rider's going with the elephant. So if you're going to persuade someone, all of your persuasion should be aimed at the elephant. It should be aimed at the heart, at the relationships, at the creating a community that someone would want to be a part of. Hmm. And it's funny. I remember when I first read that, I thought, huh, that's what I've, you know, I'm a, I've, I'm a recovering trial lawyer or a, re- a recovering litigator, and I did some trials. And that reminded me of being a trial lawyer. It reminded me hmm. of when I had a jury... My first task was I, I wanted to make them want to rule for my client here right. in their heart. Yeah, yeah. And then the head would come along. And so what we're always doing is we're aiming at the head. And then when the head when they don't come along, we get angry. And that causes the heart to harden even more. Mm-hmm. And so we're doing the opposite of persuasion. We're hardening mm-hmm. by always aiming at sort of this. And there's this really fascinating... Um, Again, going back to one of these individuals I talked to in researching my book, and he said this. And when you hear it, it makes total sense. If you're a deeply committed partisan, when you hear contrary facts, I'm not talking just contrary arguments, facts, your body goes into fight or flight mode. In other words, it has an emotional, physical, chemical Hmm. reaction. And which then makes all kinds of sense. Oh, this fact check didn't work. Well, of course it didn't. Mm-hmm. It's not that fact checks aren't important. They can be very important once a mind or heart is opened. But if right. the fact check doesn't open the mind or heart. Right. And I mean, that's a pretty profound theological insight too, right? Mm-hmm. If, um, right. <laughs> if our hearts are hardened, then there's also this sense in which the conversion and God's grace working in us, like there has to be kind of a receptivity there. Can I introduce you to a new term? Yes. Okay. Orthocardia. Oh. Okay. okay. So you're familiar yeah. you're familiar with orthodoxy, yeah. the right beliefs. Yeah. Orthopraxy, the right yeah. practices. Orthocardia, the right heart. Yeah. And and this is something actually my Sunday school teacher at my at my church in um, Nash or outside of Nashville introduced me to this term. He's a, a Bible professor at my alma mater, Lipscomb University. And you don't see much writing about it out there, but it really is an interesting mm-hmm. framework. Where is my heart? Because, you know, Scripture teaches us that we can do incredible things. And if you have not love, it's a sounding gong or a clanging, ganging symbol. Mm-hmm. Scripture teaches us that demons believe and shudder. You know, so this belief or these practices, which we're always we're focusing on and are important— have to be connected at the heart level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the longer I listen to you, the more it seems almost like the solution to this pretty immense problem we have in American politics and culture, it's almost a bottom-up one. Like it yeah. begins with getting your own house in order in the sense like it begins. I mean, there's also a character problem, right? Let's be mm-hmm. honest. Oh, right? if, for you know, sure. Or if you think of like Plato's famous vision of the charioteer, like your reason is the one who's driving, you know, has control and over your your passions, the horses, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, you know, if we're, you know, imbibing social media and just reading all this inflammatory rhetoric all the time, like the, it's the horses that are going to be driving the chariot, yeah. not not the charioteer. And so there's, so it seems like there's like character work that needs to happen on an individual level and then working on one's relationships in the family, in the community, right? So there can be this almost like bottom up, perhaps reorientation or, I don't know, cleansing. It might sound like a creepy word to you because of something of American society, right? <laughs> no, of right? course. You know, and the interesting thing is if you look in history and you see powerful historical movements, both for good and ill, a lot of times what you see is there's a lot of churn or there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of, of foment sort of at the, at the level of just regular folks. Like there is... Yeah. At the popular level, at the grassroots level, there's a discontent. There is um, a, a, a sense of longing or loss or something. And then there is a match of leader and moment. 
Hmm. or leader in people. And sometimes it can be awful. We've seen that be awful. Right. And then sometimes it can be good. You hmm. know, so there was this churn in American society running up to the the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you know, one of the things when you study the Revolutionary War, you know that it wasn't inevitable that we were going to be led by, say, a George Washington or James Madison or, you know, some of the the people who ultimately demonstrated an enormous amount of wisdom and restraint and insight. There were competing forces at that time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't inevitable. You know, it looks in, in hindsight. I mean, you know, it looks like, oh, of course, George Washington. But, you know, there are people trying to undermine him every step of the way. And so what did he really? Uh, so there you had a foment, you had a moment. And then you had this man or you had these men who matched the moment and rose to the occasion. This is something that's happened. We've been blessed in American history. Think about the Civil War. Um, My goodness, you can't have more upheaval than the Civil War. And nobody knew that Abraham Lincoln was going to be up to the task. You know, going in, I mean, what, what is it that qualified him to be, to later be one of the greatest men in American history? He met the moment. And one of the problems that we have is we have a lot of foment and we have a lot of discontent. But who are the men or women who are meeting the moment? Right now, most of them are meeting it in the worst way. Yeah, They're rising to the occasion of, of, of divisiveness and misinformation. That's what they're, they're well, they're sinking to. Mm-hmm. But who's rising right now? And that, that's where we have a real sense of loss and a void. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you about abortion. Okay. Total, I mean, not a total left shift here, um, but it sounds like it's a it's a topic that you're interested in. It is for me as well. Mm-hmm. And I know there's been some kind of news um, yeah. today about the Supreme Court. and um, But I would just like to hear your analysis of, I guess, the... Like how, how does abortion specifically map onto this conversation that we're having? Yeah. So this is a really interesting conversation because here's a here's a good trivia question um does abortion rise or fall under pro-life or do abortion rates in the last 40 years have abortion rates risen or fallen under pro-life presidents well i mean abortion rates in what time frame last 40 years 40 years yeah since so they've fallen they've fallen yes have they risen or fallen under pro-choice presidents? That I don't know. I just know overall fallen. they've fallen. Okay. So, yeah. so abortion, if you look at what's happened to abortion in the United States, it it spiked after Roe v. Wade, yes. went way up. And then from 1980, running up until 2017 or so, it, the, the, the reporting kind of lags pretty significantly. From 1980 to 2017, it just fell, 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 fell. Mm-hmm. I mean, to the point where we now have fewer a lower abortion rate than when Roe was decided. Yes. And Roe was, when Roe was decided, abortion was illegal in a lot of jurisdictions. So we actually have a lower abortion rate and ratio, in other words, abortions per 1,000 women or abortions per 1,000 pregnancies than when Roe was decided. And that's fascinating to Mm -hmm. me. Okay, that's fascinating. And so one of the things that I think it's, one of the hidden realities of American life is that the pro-life movement has been quietly one of the most successful social movements in the U.S. Yes, it has changed some laws. It has not changed yet, reversed Roe. Mm-hmm. But what it has done very powerfully is that it has taught the culture that pregnancies are precious. And so here's a fascinating thing that um, the university, some Notre Dame researchers did. They got hundreds of Americans from all walks of life, they didn't tell them they're going to talk about abortion because abortion polling is notoriously bad because <laughs> um, everything depends on how you phrase the question and nobody knows the legal issues. Right. And so they brought in hundreds of people and they just said they had one-on-one conversations with them about abortion. And what they found was that the people politically were all over the map. Um, there was a small percentage that wanted to ban abortion. There was a small percentage that wanted to be legal in all circumstance. Mm -hmm. Most people were somewhere in between. That's something we've known about abortion polling forever. But not one of the people, even the most pro-choice people they surveyed, said abortion was a positive good. Okay. Not one. Hmm. So what is happening 
Well, of course, there's, you know, more contraception and, you know, intentionality and pregnancies and all of that stuff. Yeah, that is happening. But but it's also true that more unplanned pregnancies are being carried to term. And so what's happening is that our culture slowly but surely is turning its back on abortion, which is incredibly positive, Mm -hmm. incredibly positive. Um, And so what that tells me is that we might see if these present rates continue, it might be we might reach a point where abortion is a fringe activity, Hmm. like a fringe act. So that all gives me hope. Yeah. What worries me is it is still such an incredible political hot potato. Yes. Now, I want to see Roe v. Wade overturned for two reasons. One huge, one one moderately huge. <laughs> the huge reason I want Roe v. Wade overturned is it's just unjust. It is contrary to the dignity of life that is embedded in the Christian um, that is embedded in Christian theology and embedded in our constitutional our founding documents. One of the rights we're endowed with is life. life. Mm-hmm. So it is fundamentally unjust that our our laws do not protect unborn life. Mm-hmm. So that's the huge reason. Here's the other reason. I think it would make America a less polarized and, and mm-hmm. angry place if Roe was overturned. And here's why. Mm-hmm. The Roe decision was garbage. <laughs> I, think the, I think that's the, I don't want to use legalese. <laughs> <laughs> but the legal term is it was garbage. It was made up. Yeah. It was made up. They took an issue that had been traditionally left to the democratic process mm-hmm. and yanked it away from the democratic process, all because these judges decided to make it constitutional. Well, that unleashed a firestorm mm-hmm. that we're still dealing with. Yeah. In 1992, a famous Supreme Court justice said, you know, if Roe had been less breathtaking in scope, then we would probably not be dealing with a lot of the divisiveness we have in our culture today. Do you know who that famous Supreme Court justice was? Ginsburg. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. Yep. And you pretend like you don't read stuff. But <laughs> I found you out. And so I think by overturning Roe, which doesn't ban abortion— it sends it back to the states, Mm -hmm. that we would start to smooth out a lot of the distortion we've had in national politics where every election is about Roe to a lot, to millions of people. And so Mm -hmm. it would then move the fight for life closer to home in our own state houses and our own communities instead of thinking, well, if I really, if I want to politically impact abortion, because you can impact abortion now without politics, you can go Donate right. to Crisis exactly. Pregnancy Center. You can work for one, volunteer. But politically, there's very little ability to do it. Um, but you reverse row and politically, then it empowers people. It mm-hmm. empowers people. Um, so I think that there is a justice reason mm-hmm. and there's a um, structural str- slash polarization reason to overturn Roe. Um, will it happen? I'm more optimistic than I've been in 20, 30 years, but that doesn't mean I necessarily think it'll happen. Do you think that if it does, is this like circling back to the beginning of our conversation, that it could be a catalyst for secession because it is such a polarizing issue? Okay, so will it be a seismic earthquake if they overturn Roe? Yes, yes. Would it catalyze secession? Hmm, I mean, it would be very, very divisive in the short term. There's no question about that. But there's something very interesting that I've noticed. So Texas. Mm -hmm. So Texas passed a law that I don't like. Mm -hmm. I do not like the Texas law because what it basically does is it says, because Roe is the law right now. I disagree with it, but Mm -hmm. it's the law. But they've created this very creative way to avoid the law. I see. And to avoid the law for a long time. And imagine doing that for other constitutional rights. Right. Like okay. say, imagine saying, I'm going to pass a law. You can't vote. <laughs> right. But I'm not going to let the state keep you from voting. But if you vote, any person in America can sue you for $10,000. Uh-huh. You know, right. that's a bad law. That's evading the, the Constitution. Mm-hmm. So I don't like the way Texas did it. I don't like what Texas did. Um I'm pro-life, but the means, the means, I don't like them. But here's what's interesting. 
Have any big corporations pulled out of Texas? No. Mm, okay. Um, have there been big boycotts against Texas? No. Um, some big cor- corporations have said, hey, if you're an employee and you want to move out of Texas, we'll pay your moving expenses. Has that happened at scale? Mm, no. Why not? Why not? Maybe it goes all the way back to that Notre Dame study. There's actually not that many people who are really actually deeply invested when push comes to shove Hmm. in abortion. And and I could be totally wrong about that. But my general, my, my view is if you overturn Roe, you will have weeks and maybe months of outrage. But then as it shakes out over time, it would cool off the temperature. Right. It would help to stop distorting national politics because then it would you wouldn't necessarily say, well, as a Christian, I don't care what other views you have. If you're pro-choice, I'm not voting for you. Right. Exactly. Which is mm-hmm. often I, I hear that a lot. You yeah. Know, from, yeah. From people. And I do understand that position, even though it, it doesn't sit. It doesn't sit well with me. Right. Um, Especially yeah. since we know that politicians have had so little influence over the abortion rate. Right. I know. It just it mm-hmm. seems like a. Like, like an opium of the masses kind of thing, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I'm going to tick that box and then get your vote and then I'm going to do gosh darn nothing about it. Right. right? <laughs> well, that and, and yeah. people get mad at me because I wouldn't support the I, I didn't support Donald Trump. And they say, people would even say you have blood if unborn right. children on your hands. And I said, do you <laughs> number one? I mean, the the. The, you're completely unfamiliar with what's happened with actual abortion rates in the U.S. Right. Um, the presidents have not had a material impact on it one way or the other. And then the other thing is, you know, look, I formed the first pro-life, the first pro-life activism I ever engaged in was when I was 20 years old at my college, my Christian college, where I tried to get the rules changed because if somebody was pregnant mm, out of wedlock, out? bingo, oh, good for you, bingo. So I tried to change that. And then I formed the first pro-life group at um, student-led pro-life group at Harvard Law School with two other people. Um, I have raised, helped raise millions of dollars for the pro-life movement. I've represented pro-life students in cases from coast to coast. And you're telling me because I don't vote for Donald Trump, I'm not really pro-life. Mm-hmm. And and one of my things, you know, I hate to um, kind of, you know, go here, but if you're going to get all that outraged, before you tell me how angry you are at me, first tell me the last time you volunteered at a crisis pregnancy center. Tell me the last time you donated to a crisis pregnancy center. Um, rather than, and does your pro-life activism is it is it or is it just pushing a button every four years and in mm-hmm. yelling at people on Facebook? Because right. that's not that's not it, y'all. Right. That's not it. And so that is one thing that really bothers me about some of the political discourse around life mm-hmm. is. Being pro-life is about a lot more yes. than a one vote every four years. Absolutely. And screaming on Facebook. Yeah. Well, and this kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier, which is that so much of what's wrong with our culture begins here, mm-hmm. right? And so much what needs to change is in the heart. So mm-hmm. um, that's something I've thought about in with abortion particularly, because even if, say, the laws change, you know, ultimately just by our physiology, women have sovereignty over Mm -hmm. unborn life. And so it's the women's hearts and minds that, that really need to be changed on this issue. And so many women who choose abortion, it's, it's not because they want to, right? but it's, it's often because they don't, they feel like it's their only choice Yeah, and that's not liberating. That's not freedom. Right. Well, and you raise a really great point because you could ban abortion tomorrow and you would not end abortion. Right. And abortion is easier than ever to obtain because of chemical abortions and, Mm -hmm. And so you, there is no path to ending abortion that does not go through the human heart. Yes. There's none. It does not exist. And, you know, as evidenced by 1973, abortion rates were higher when it was harder, more, you know, there mm-hmm. was more, it was illegal in yeah. most places to get an abortion. And so there's no path that doesn't go through the human heart. And so if your foremost focus isn't on the human heart, you're doing it wrong. Hmm. And, and the other thing is we need to really dive in and learn why people get abortions. Yes. So that's what this Notre Dame study did that mm-hmm. was fascinating. And they talked a lot about uh, financial insecurity, mm-hmm. especially in poor, um, you know, in poor communities. And so 
if I'm a pro-life American, one of the things I'm thinking hard about is um, Joe Biden and Mitt Romney have both suggested, and if and Biden to a degree have put into place child allowances. Yes. In other words, payments to young parents, mm -hmm. uh, to parents of young children. Well, if you can ease the financial insecurity, some people have modeled this out as saving tens of thousands of lives a year. Yeah. So I would love it if the pro-life movement said, hey, as a pro-life movement, let's think about this. Yep. The thing I like about Mitt Romney's plan is his child allowance payments began, would if it was passed into law, begin prenatally. Hmm. So they begin several months, they begin in the pregnancy so that a person who is pregnant can start receiving these uh, child allowances to help prepare for the birth of their child. And there are estimates that these child allowances alone would re reduce childhood poverty by up to 50% or more. And so if I'm pro-life, uh, I'm thinking, wow, even in a pro-choice president's administration, there's a policy mm -hmm. that I could support that might save thousands of lives a year. Exactly. Yeah. I do feel a little bit less exhausted and a little bit less confused than when we started this conversation. Oh, wonderful. So thank you. Wonderful. I, I was hoping that you would that you would help me out, David, and you you really have. So well, good. I and I will I really hope a lot of our students listen to this. And of course you're going to be giving a lecture tonight and um, so I, when you were describing the, uh, the, the younger Christian group that, you know, cares about race relations and refugees, but also the dignity of the unborn, I was like, yes, that sounds like a lot of young people I know. Yes. And yeah, let's, let's galvanize them. Somehow. Absolutely. And yeah. you know what, when you don't have to have a lot of people with you initially, I mean, that's mm -hmm. one of the things is we, we're always rating everything by numbers, numbers, numbers. But, you know, there have been various points in time in which there have been remnants, like mm. small remnants. Jesus ended his first phase of his pre-resurrection part of his ministry. How many people are around him at the foot of the cross? Like two, three, oh, three I think. Maybe. I'm tiny. Yeah. I don't, you yeah. know, tiny. Um, you know, the, when, when even after he ascended, the total number of disciples tiny number, mm -hmm. just a tiny number. And so, you know, we sit there and we go, oh, well, there's not many of us. Right. <laughs> you know, well, thank God the early Christians didn't go, darn it. Yeah. Shoot. <laughs> there's only, there's only 12 of us, man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'm, I, I'm just thrilled that you're here and that you took the time to have a conversation with me and um, I hope you also get less exhausted because I think your voice is an important one. Well, so, thank you. I yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the George Fox Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts on your phone or computer. You can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks, where we have videos, publications, and more. And you can also find our playlist on YouTube at youtube.com slash georgefoxtalks. 